Hope y'all are doing well. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23. We've been studying through the book of Acts for a while now. We'll be picking back up. Um, We took one week off for last week for Easter, and so we are back. Acts chapter 23. We're going to start today in verse 12. Acts 23 verse 12. Um, Here at Remedy, we... uh, we stand whenever we read the Bible, so if you're able, I'd love for you to stand with us, and we'll read starting at Acts chapter 23, verse 12, and we'll actually go to the end of the chapter, so we'll go all the way to verse 35, all the way to verse 35. Acts 23, starting at verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you are going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now, the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So they took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner has called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, and he has something to tell you. The tribune took him by the hand and, and going outside, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of the men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called the two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias to his excellency, the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued them, rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which They were accusing him. I brought him down to their council. I found out that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering this accuser, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipas. And to Patras, on the next day they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded by Herod's praetorium. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. We thank you for... Uh, no matter what, whenever we read it, it speaks to us, and we pray for that this morning. We pray that whenever we study your word this morning, that you would use it to uh, train our hearts to want to be obedient to you, train our hearts to love Christ for what he's done for us. 
And God, also to uh, see you in the everyday details of life, in our own lives, as we see it in this particular uh, piece of scripture, and that we would be looking for you every day. I pray for myself, God, that you would help me, that you would help me speak truth, and that uh, this morning we would all be uh, filled with the Spirit and discerning according to your, to be able to discern your scriptures and um, be obedient to what you teach us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, We've been studying through the book of Acts, and some of the things, just to bring you up to date, in case you haven't been here with us, is Paul has finished his three missionary journeys. And as he finished his three missionary journeys, back in chapter 21, uh, he had gone to see James, and they rejoiced together about some of the salvation that they had both seen. Paul agreed to a, uh, uh, an idea that James had to try to make the Jews not make not, not try to make the Jews not dislike Paul, it didn't work. Uh, in chapter twenty one twenty seven, he went into the temple and they arrested him. And there's been uh, some back and forth here uh, several times. The Tribune, which is the Roman, uh, the Roman guy that's in charge here in Jerusalem, has had to save Paul. Uh, at one point. Uh, he didn't know that Paul was a Roman citizen and he was going to whip him and beat him. Um, as soon as he found out he was a Roman citizen, he took him out of the stocks and was pretty, pretty much freaking out, thinking he's messed up and that he's going to get in super big trouble. Uh, but they've gone back and forth and Paul's explained uh, what's going on. He's explained to even to the Jews that wanted to kill him why they shouldn't want to, which has brought us over to the point that we're at right, right now, uh, starting in verse 12, um, where... <coughs> uh, as we're getting into verse 12, we can see that there's Jews that are making a plot and they're bounding by themselves an oath to kill Paul. Now, right before that, which we saw last, well, two weeks ago, um, Christ had come to Paul and made him a promise. So that promise is something I want to include in the text that we're looking at. So just as a reminder, um, Paul is in the, in the jail. He's, he's had some downtime, some upset time here where he's figuring out that maybe... Uh, he, he's thinking at least, maybe I haven't been obedient. Maybe this wasn't the right thing to do. Maybe I'm not, I'm not following the Lord's will. Or at least he's feeling a little bit down, no doubt. And then it says in verse 11, at that, that kind of that da- most down part of his life, um, or at this, this particular time, in verse 11, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage. So the, God comes to him, Christ comes to him and tells him that he needs to be courageous and to take courage in what's going on. And then after that, he makes a promise to him. Uh, And and the promise is what Paul's always wanted, which is to be able to go to Rome and preach the gospel. Now, we've said this numerous times. It's not going to be the way that Paul thought. Paul wants to go to Rome and preach the gospel in the same way that he's done his missionary journeys. Free, not in jail, free to go around, preach the gospel, etc. He's going to go to Rome, but he's going to go to Rome as a prisoner. But he says, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, you've been a good witness for me in Jerusalem. He said, so you must also testify in Rome. So this is the promise that he makes to him. Now, being that this is the promise, Christ um, doesn't break promises. That's one of the things that he doesn't do ever. He never breaks his promises. So today, uh, whenever we're looking at this, I want, to, I want us to understand the the. The immediate end or purpose that God has for Paul right now is to go to Rome. The more kind of broader purpose that's been stated for us in the book of Acts is that they would be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Uh, and that, that goes in with us as well. That's more, the more broad purpose. But here we see that he's, he's planned this particular end for Paul. Now, 
Um, anytime God has an end or a purpose in mind, he doesn't just hope that it's going to happen. Since he's God, he also plans the means by which that happens. An end or, or a purpose is, I want this stated thing to happen. The, I want to build a house. The means by which that's going to happen are I'm going to you know, hire a company or go find a, plant, a plot of land. I'm going to look for uh, you know, a, a house plan or whatever. I'm going to do the means in order to have the end happen. It's the same thing here with God. He's telling Paul, you're going to go to Rome, but there's have, things that have to happen in order to get there. And those means by which the end's going to happen aren't just going to happen and God not have any control over it. So God, when he plans the ends, because he's God, he necessarily plans the means. One, one old school Cayman's call song says it this way, because you knew how you'd save me before I fell dead in the garden. So, in other words, before we ever died in the garden, he knew how he was going to save us. Um, and you knew this day long before you made me out of dirt. And you know the plans that you have for me. And you can't plan the end and not plan the means. Now, I'm, I'm not sure if the guy that wrote this, uh, how he's doing today. But nevertheless, these particular words as he wrote them are really well, are really well stated, which is um, whenever God plans ends... He also plans the means of those ends, or he's not God. And so what we're going to look at here uh, as we get into this particular uh, time is we're going to see the end that God has, has given to Paul and how he's going to bring it about. So um, we're, we won't get to all the way to Rome today, but we're going to see nevertheless how God's planning means to get to the end. So the, the promise that he makes him, as we saw in verse 11, is that he's going to get to go to Rome. Now, um, Paul is told by, by Jesus here that he needs to be courageous. He needs to be courageous. So we're going to see Paul acting, even as he has acted, uh, in, in a very courageous manner. Um, so when we wonder, it might, it might be something that we think about, what's the manner of which or what's the source of which this courage comes from? It's obviously this personal visit from Christ that he has here uh, in, this, in this Roman prison in Jerusalem. Uh, so uh, one, one commentary, John Stott says that's talking about the source of, of John's, or, or Paul's courage. He says, the source of his courage was his serene confidence in truth because his faith was the faith of his fathers and the gospel was the fulfillment of the law. Above all, he knew that his Lord and his Savior Jesus Christ, his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was with him and would keep his promise that he would bear witness someday, somehow, in Rome. So, uh, the the source of which Paul has that he can remain confident is the fact that Jesus Christ has come and talked to him and said, you're going to go to Rome. Not only that, that Christ has saved him. So he, he's trusting in this goodness of God that he has been good to him thus far and that he's, since he's been good to him by saving him on the road to Damascus, he's going to continue to be good. So for us, it's the same. Our, our source uh, and our hope for our courage that the Lord commands us to have is the same. If we're going to be courageous, it's because we trust in God, what he said, and we also trust in the good news or the gospel that he saved us. So since he would be so good to save us out of our wretchedness, to, to give us this amazing hope we have in the Savior, then we have a hope just like Paul. Now, um, here's what we know thus far. We've got Paul kind of... Uh, between two enemies in some manner. We've got the Jews, the religious ones, that are acting really prejudiced and really violent towards him. And we've got Paul being held by the people that are Romans, but they aren't being very nice to him necessarily. They're somewhat nice. At least it's a powerful 
Gentile Roman government that, that's not sympathetic to Jews, and, but they're a little bit more open-minded than the Jewish people. Uh, they are maintaining law and justice and keeping him alive, but nevertheless, he's finding himself in between these two, and he'll find himself in between these two for the rest of the book of Acts. And uh, incidentally, it's interesting, it's not the Jews that have saved Paul thus far, but at the end of the story today, it'll be the Roman government that has saved Paul like four separate times from the angry mob of the Jews. So he's trapped between these, uh, these two um, enemies and, and the only source of comfort he has is Christ himself. Now, let's look at this and I've, I've tried to make it fun for us and try to make it memorable. So there's, there's three Ps, uh, so it's really alliterated. Uh, so the first one is the promise. All right, so you can go ahead and put up the promise. Point number one, the promise that we see in verse 11 is you must testify also for me in Rome. And this promise is perfectly timed. Um, one day uh, later, Paul would be hearing about the plot to kill him and it was Jesus' encouragement, this, this, this encouragement that he says that you can stay strong and you can trust in, in him. So the perfectly timed uh, promise of Jesus comes and so uh, Christ is never late. He may seem late to us, but all of his promises are perfectly timed even for us. And there's, there's, there's an overwhelming amount of promises made available to us in the scriptures as well. Um, the more you study the scriptures, the more you become uh, acquainted with all, all the promises of God and that he makes to his children, um, then the better off that we all are. So know his promises and know his word. But here he gives him the promise, which is that he will testify in Rome. Now, there's a second promise thing that comes, which is this plot. So we've got the promise that, that, the, uh, that Christ gives to Paul, but there's somebody trying to throw off that promise or make that thing not to happen, which is the plot, which takes, uh, you can go ahead and put it up in verse 12 through 15. It says, when it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, um, Paul's in a Roman prison but there are people outside of the prison who are Jewish that don't like Paul. And so they say to themselves, I am so fed up with Paul. I, I hate him so much. I'm just, uh, this is what I'm going to do. And they, they make an oath before God. I'm never going to eat again until Paul's dead. Now, when you make an oath to God like this, kind of like the oath of Jephthah, this is a serious thing. It's either God, if I break this oath, you can kill me or I'm gonna kill, I'm gonna kill Paul and keep this oath, no matter what. And so they, their hatred for Paul is so great that they make this oath before God um, and they say, I am never going to eat again until Paul's dead. And it says that there were more than 40 people who made this conspiracy. That's, that's a lot of built up hatred towards Paul. So here's the plot. We have the promise of God. Now we're seeing the plot trying to thwart the promise. And it says, they went to the chief priests and the elders and they said, so this, this was a collection of 40 Jews and they went to their, their Jewish uh, rulers and this is what they said. We've got this idea. Well, we've, we've already actually made more than an idea. We've made an oath. And they said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath. This bound ourselves by an oath is literally anathematized themselves with an anathema. So they have a serious hatred, a serious hatred for Paul. And they said, to taste no food until we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, um, give notice to the tribune. So they go to the, the, the Jewish rulers and they say this is what we want you to do Jewish rulers we want you to go over to the Roman tribune and we want you to tell him uh, that you want to have a meeting 
with Paul. Again, to hear his case and see if he's broken the, Roman law, uh, the, the Jewish law. And while they're transporting him over to you to talk to you, we're going to lay in stealth and we're going we're to kill him. That's, that's our goal. You can see it here. Now, therefore, along with the tribune, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you. And as they were, they're going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. That's the plot that they have. Now, I feel like, um, and it, it, I think it's true because as we read the story, it seems to be true that this plan is not well thought out. It's not well thought out because it's 40 of them. And you and I know that if 40 people know something, everybody knows it. You know, it's just, just the way we are, right? If there's ever a time when 40 people have made, have made an oath or they know it, then everybody knows it. So all that has to happen is for one person or in some way for it to get back to Paul and then it's over. Because, you know, if, it gets, if, if I'm Paul and I hear, oh, they said that they're not going to eat again until... I die. Okay, guard, I demand to stay in here one more month. <laughs> Just one more month's all I need. I, I'm loving it. Yep, now go tell them they made an oath before God. Yeah, an, so if they break it, they're going to die. Yep, one month will do it. That's all I need. They'll all die soon, and then I'm fine. I'm in the clear. So it just doesn't seem like it's a well-thought-out plan, because if you're like, I will never eat again until he's dead, and then he just, he just hides from you, then you're dead. Like, this is not a smart out, not a very smart plan. But they bound themselves with an oath here. And so they have a serious animus to the gospel. Um, John Stott says, but even the most careful and cunning of human plans cannot succeed if God opposes them. And obviously God does oppose them because you have, that's the plot. And so it brings us to, uh, it brings us to the providence of God. It brings us to the providence of God. So um, as I talked about the ends and the means, when we see that the, the, the end is that God says you're going to get to Rome, there's the means by which that has to happen. And this, this means whenever God is moving and doing something, this is, the, this is called the providential care. We, we call it the sovereignty of God. And when he's doing it, it's, and, and he's acting, he's literally acting in human history, that's called providence. It's whenever he's doing things. And so what we're going to see now, we've seen the plot. And we've seen, I'm sorry, we've seen the promise and we've seen the plot, plot. And now we're going to see the third thing, which is the providential care protecting Paul. Put three Ps in there just for fun. So the providential care of protecting Paul. Now, let's be, let's be sure here. Um, when God um, is, is intervening in the means, uh, whenever he's, he has an end in mind and there's means by which have to happen, he can, if he wants, not use human agents whatsoever. He can just do it all himself. Like in Acts chapter 12, there was, uh, there was Peter who was in jail, maybe even the same jail in Jerusalem, and all of a sudden, an angel shows up and just unhooks the stocks. And Peter just kind of walks out of the jail, you know, and knocks on the door. And is like, hey, I'm out. An angel let me out. Like, God could do that here, right? He could just let him out. I mean, Psalm 115, verse 3. I'm the Lord of the heavens and I do what I want, basically. Or Job 38, whenever Job's talking to, to God and he finally comes down. He's talking about God and finally God, he comes down and he goes, hey, Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Or even Genesis 1-1, God created the heavens and the earth. Like, if God wants to, he can just do it all himself. He doesn't have to maneuver uh, humans in such a way to where we obey the, the sovereign hand of, or the providence of God and do things. So he has an end, and he can providentially just supernaturally make things happen. 
But that's not the ordinary way in which God's ends come to pass. The ordinary way, which we experience most commonly, is humans being obedient to the will of the Father and doing things. And that's what we're going to see here. So in the providential care protecting Paul, it's not supernatural. It's humans being obedient. And we're going to see three different ways this happens. Three different ways this happens. So God doesn't always uh, act supernaturally, although you could even say that these things might be miraculous. Um, We can sometimes think that if we don't see God working in these huge visible signs, then he isn't acting in sovereignty uh, just because all kind of seems normal. But whenever all seems normal, his hand is still at work during these times. And that's, what ha- that's what's happening here. It's no accident whatsoever that all of a sudden Paul's nephew hears of this little plot, right? So we've seen the promise, we've seen the plot. Now we're going to see the providential care of the, uh, protecting Paul. And these three, these three ways which he pro- uh, is going to care for him are th- almost three L's. They're almost three L's. It's a lad and a letter and the military. So um, that's, that's as good as I could get. I, I tried to go with like a legion of army, but it's not a legion, so I just went with military. So uh, the first one's the lad. I know it's brutal. So here we are. Verse 16, it says, Now the son of Paul's sister. And if you are like a serious student in the Bible, you're like, What? Paul's sister? Nephew? How come we've never heard of this? And Luke's like, yeah, Paul's sister. Never mentioned him again ever. And like, we're all like, who's Paul's sister and what's going on? Um, when some commentators are saying that there was an, that there, he, was, he was very estranged from his family. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, when he said, I count all things as rubbish. I've, I've, I've given up all things for the sake of Christ. Some people have, have drawn out of that, even his family. And, and so we don't even know if, if his sister... And his nephew are Christians or not, but Paul's family, and they're just kind of trying to keep him alive. But nevertheless, here we are, Paul's family. He's got a, he's got a nephew. Um, Luke didn't give us any more, so the Holy Spirit didn't want us to know anymore. But nevertheless, Paul's got a nephew. Now, we don't know how old he is. Um, we do know two, there's two little hints that try to tell us. Uh, one, you can see in verse 22, the tribune dismissed the young man. So likely he was younger um, maybe a teenager. We also see, which is a strange thing if he was an older guy, which is whenever he went to the tribune, it says in verse 19, the tribune took him by the hand and going aside privately. I feel like he would be a younger guy, not an older guy. You don't really, wouldn't see an older man like grab an older man's hand and say, come on over here, let's talk for a second. You'd be like, that's kind of strange. So, but a child, you'd be like, yeah, that's what you do with children. So uh, likely 10, 11, 15, 14, something younger, but not a baby to where he can't actually give a report like, hey, they're trying to kill my uncle. Uh, but here we are, and it says um, in verse 16, the, the son of Paul's uh, sister heard of their ambush. So we went and entered the barracks. I mean, these two things right here are pretty amazing. One, how did he hear? How, how, did, how would he just happen to be around these 40 guys? Well, I've already said if 40 people know something, everybody knows it. Uh, but God, I mean, God somehow put this guy, this, this child around there, and he heard. And the more amazing part is, how does this child enter the barracks of the Roman jail and, and, and deliver a message to Paul? God. I mean, it's just, these are things that God are, are, are causing to happen, which are pretty supernatural. Um, 
but God's using this particular youth, this boy, this young boy, to showcase his sovereignty. And says Paul called one of the centurions. This is even more God. Like, even after he heard it, Paul said to the centurion, hey, he's got something to tell you. A centurion could have said, yeah, whatever, figure it out yourself. But no, the centurion is a kind-hearted centurion of the Roman government that says, okay, what is it? Uh, you want me to take him to the tribune, to the, to the leader here? Okay, so this kind centurion, all, all providential hand of God acting to where he says, okay, let's do that. Um, and then it says this, uh, take him to the tribune, and Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring, and then he says to the tribune, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. And the tribune took him by the hand, took him aside and said, what is it? And then uh, this is, I think, Luke the doctor Because if this was really a young boy, it would not be this clear. I read this a a few times thinking, man, this kid is well-spoken. But this is just Luke, I think, kind of cleaning up. was like, so what happened was, like, Paul, he's my my uncle, and they're trying to kill him. It's the Jews, and I heard about it, and they'd want to do it whenever he's walking back and forth, and it's going to happen. They're trying to, so Luke cleans it up for us, and we're like, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to acquire something more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by them. This does not sound like a child. Luke's made it sound, you know, like for us, uh, so we can understand it. Far more, for more than 40 of their men who are lying in ambush for him have bound themselves by an oath to neither eat nor drink they have killed him. And they're ready and waiting for your consent. So uh, here we see the tribune hearing this, and he doesn't want Paul to die. The tribune has gone to great pains to keep Paul alive. And if he dies, like by the Jews' hands going to this fake meeting, then the tribune looks bad. He doesn't want to look bad. So um, he's going to protect Paul's life here. And he says, tell no one that you've informed me of these things. Now, just a simple rule. If one person has been told not to tell something, it won't probably spread. If 40, it's going to. Um, But Kent Hughes... Kent Hughes comments on this. He says, God intervenes on his servant's behalf by taking an unidentified nephew and placing him in just the right place at just the right time to learn about the murderous plot. Paul surely praised God for this. So we should should marvel here at the sovereignty of God using this young child to spare Paul's life. And we should marvel uh, thinking that even in our own lives and in our own day, the Lord will often use children to accomplish his purposes. Um, so we shouldn't discount the use of children for the Lord's work until they're older. That's not, that's not the thing that we should do at all. As a matter of fact, we should be open and, and, and willing to think about the Lord using children to accomplish his purposes today. So, um, and I've already said God's sovereignty and goodness is put on display even as the centurion listens and is willing to take the nephew to the tribune and even the tribune willing to listen to a child telling these things. So um, we, we see that the tribune listens and he says, I'm going to take some resolute action. So that's, that's the first one. You can put up number one. Sorry, the three unexpected sources. One is the, the, first, uh, the first piece of providential care is Paul's nephew. Now we see this second piece of providential care uh, in the form of a letter. So Claudius Lysias is the tribune, uh, a very self-involved person, uh, writes this letter to Felix the governor in Caesarea, and we see that here. Uh, And it's the second kind of piece of providential care where God's going to take, you can go ahead and put up number two. The second piece of providential care is Claudius, Claudius Lysias, and I put cover letter because uh, it's really just Claudius Lysias kind of um, 
covering his own behind and not getting in trouble. So if, you, if you've been with us, you know, like, it hasn't been that great for Paul. He was put in the stocks and about to be whipped, and it's been, not been great. But Claudius Lysias is going to uh, make himself sound like the hero. So he takes a lad uh, and uses this lad to, to um, keep Paul safe. And now he takes this very self-involved letter, self-aggrandizing letter of Claudius Lysias and uses it for Paul's care. Now, Claudius Lysias is writing this to make himself look great. No doubt about it. But God's going to take that and use it to keep Paul safe. You can see it in, starting in verse 23 when, the, when he called the centurion. Um, well, we're going to get to that in just a second. But just we'll read this and remember it for the next section. But uh, when he, he called the centurion and said, get 200 soldiers and 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen and go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. That would be 9 o'clock uh, p.m. And also provide mounts for Paul to ride. Uh, don't want him to be uncomfortable. Let's get him some good places to sit and ride him. I mean, it's just amazing like how much God's orchestrating this safe passage of Paul. And bring him safely to Felix the governor. He wrote this letter. Here it is. Claudius Lysias. This is him. To his excellency, the governor Felix. This guy, this guy Felix, isn't a really nice guy, nor is he a, a very competent guy. He was a slave at one point that became free. Um, and so he kind of ruled like a former slave, kind of always had a chip on his shoulder. Uh, commentators described him as violent, licentious, ineffective, corrupt, and incompetent. More to come on him next week, but he sounds like a really awesome fella. Um, but he writes this pen, nevertheless, Claudius Lysias to this excellency, Governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Notice how self-involved Claudius Lysias paints himself in the best possible. It just kind of leaves out the, pro- the idea that I also was about to whip him to death. Um, this man was seized by the Jews and was about to kill by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen after I was about to kill him, uh, uh, leave that part out, and desiring to know the charge for which they accused him, I brought him down to the council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law. Here's maybe the most important little, little fragment sentence or clause in this, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. Uh, in, in this um, Claudius Lysias' eyes, he knows that Paul should not be killed. So he knows that these charges don't deserve death. And so he's, he's protecting him. And when it was disclosed to me that there was a plot against this man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers to also state before you what they have done. So they'll, they'll come see him later. But the whole point is this letter that he's writing is uh, a cover letter for himself, but ends up being another piece of God's providence that, that protects Paul. Um, it was clearly written to make himself look good, uh, and he, talks about, he touts about how he saved Paul from the clutches of his foes. But nevertheless, uh, he leaves out how he was <laughs> about to kill him. But the key part of the letter, as I said, is that he's charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And so since that's the case, he's going to, uh, he's going to protect him and send him on. So the second piece of God's providence is not only a lad, but a letter. And the last one is the military. So uh, as we can see in verse 23 through 25... There's 470 soldiers that are going to transport him. Uh, most of those transport him at least halfway. Some of them turn back and go the rest of the way. And then after that, um, the, the other part of the Roman government that protects him, you can see in verse 35, he's guarded by Herod's praetorium. So the third piece that you can see of providential care is the Roman army. The Roman army, which is, if you look at this, 
This is pretty unexpected. If you just kind of take the big step back and say, I wonder how Paul's going to be safe today. Well, a little boy is going to do something that God's going to use. Uh, A very self-involved leader is going to write a letter, and that's going to protect Paul. And not only that, the whole, well, not the whole, but probably 80% of the Roman army of Jerusalem at the time is going to transport him. That's how God's going to keep Paul alive today. These are not things that we would think. These are, not, these are just the most odd things that God would use in our mind as we look at it. But as we read the story, like, wow, things aligned in such a way just to, uh, for God's ends as he orchestrated the means as well. And people were obedient and people obeyed. And then Paul finds safe passage. Um, so we can see here there's, there's two pieces of the Roman army that are going to keep Paul safe. You can see the first one in verses 23 to 25. 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen they, to go out as far as Caesarea at the third hour. Uh, and then it says, um, they got to, in verse 31, the soldiers, according to their instructions, brought Paul's, him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen go on. So the horsemen kept going. Uh, but you have 470 people transporting him for at least part of it, and then some of them go back, and the rest take him, and it says they came to Caesarea. Um, so if you're wondering where Caesarea is, I have my little map. You can go to the map. This is fun. Somebody gave me a pointer. Let's see here. Woo, here we are. So, oh, it's not showing up great, but here we are. Here's Jerusalem right here in the bottom corner. I'm going to have to come over here. It's not showing up. All right. So here's Jerusalem right here. Um, here's Jerusalem, and here's Caesarea. So they're, they're going by night all the way to this kind of port place, Right, right there. If I get real close, you can see it. Uh, they're going right here. Uh, now, Rome's really far, right? Rome's really far. But nevertheless, they're going up here to Caesarea. Uh, and this Caesarea is named after Augustus Caesar. Um, it was a, a city that was on the Mediterranean Sea. And it was a headquarter for Roman military forces. And so they're going up there. And they're going to go see Felix. Um, and as John Stott says, Felix was other, utterly ruthless in quelling Jewish uprisings. And so the sovereignty of God brings him to someone that, that stomps these things out. Um, now, you've got 470 soldiers protecting him, which sounds more like a king and not a criminal on the transport. Uh, and this is an extraordinary over-provision by, by God to keep Paul, uh, keep Paul safe. This is 80% of the force of, in Jerusalem of the Roman force um, and 50% um, complete the entire journey, which is pretty amazing. Um, Tony Marita says, they assumed they were moving a prisoner, but God was transporting his prisoner, his, I'm sorry, his preacher safely. So uh, they thought they were assuming, moving a prisoner, but, but God was really just moving his preacher to another place. So we can see here the soldiers, according to their instructions, verse 31, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris, and on the next day, they returned to the barracks. And they come to Caesarea. They delivered the letter to the governor and presented Paul before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned he's from Sicilia, because he's from Tarsus, so one of the northern uh, regions, he said, I will give you a hearing when the accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded by Herod's praetorium. So to sum up, we've got God's sovereignty here uh, by the nephew that thwarts the plan, Lysias' report, um, Lysias wrote this letter to report the plan, and then you've got the soldiers transport uh, all the way, brings the prisoner all the way up to uh, Caesarea. And all of this occurs under the sovereign rule of God. So 
here's the question then. What does it mean then? If we read this, what does it mean for you and me today? When we understand God's sovereignty, what does it mean for us today? I think it means this, is that God is far more infinitely involved in our daily lives than what we think. I mean, he's using a little boy, he's using a letter, and he's using the entire Roman army. Just unexpected sources to keep Paul safe. And if that's the case, then, Paul, then God is far more involved in our daily lives than we can possibly imagine. Your daily life, from your perspective, may not seem spectacular. It may not seem like God's intimately involved in every detail of what's going on in your life. However, that's not true. He is intimately involved in every detail. And you need to realize and live your life and know that God is intimately involved in every detail of your daily life, which means if God, as Ephesians 1 would state, has planned from eternity past for your friend to be saved, that's the end, that he wants your friend, your, your sister, or your coworker, or, or whatever, to be saved, then the means by which that he wants that to come to pass are also things that he's planned. And from that, we can discern that our obedience is absolutely crucial for that. We can just say, God's going to save him, he can do whatever he wants, and I can just chill over here and play video games, and it doesn't matter because he's going to do what he wants. It's not the case at all. It's not the case at all. Whenever God has an end, he still wants our obedience in the minutia of everyday life, in the, in the means to bring those things about. So when, there's people in your life that God wants to be saved. There's no doubt about it. And God wants you to be an intimately involved person and obe- obeying him to bring those things about. Because they won't happen until, unless you obey. The, when God plans the means, he plans for your obedience to happen in order for those things to happen. So uh, I think that the, the main draw that we can get or the main takeaway we can have when we're looking at the sovereignty of God is day to day, in all of our life, even in the minutia of life, uh, the things that you think seem insignificant, from making food for your family to whatever, all those things are important, and God is using every single one of those things, and we need to be obedient in all those things. It's crucial because his larger purpose is happening. Is happening. So let's, let's close this way with, with, I know it's ridiculous, but three T's. Um, <laughs> first is this. I want you to, I want you to trust. Trust in Christ for your salvation that is provided and trust God in all circumstances. Trust God in all circumstances, good or bad. Trust him in all circumstances. Um, It's not important whether we understand what God's doing. This is Derek Thomas. I love this quote. It's not important necessarily that we understand what God is always doing. Only for us to trust that God knows what he's doing and therefore we can trust him. Now, it's naive if I apply that to anybody else but God. For me to just say, I just trust this person, I trust that he's knows what he's doing. That's a really naive statement to apply to anybody. Me, anybody. Like if you apply it to me or whoever, that's a really naive thing to do. Because all humans will fail at some point. But it's not naive to apply to God. In order for him to be God, then he's in charge of all things. And so you can trust him. So you don't have to necessarily understand all that he's doing, but what is necessary is that you trust that he knows what he's doing, which he does, and so you can trust him. So the first thing that we can do is trust. 
Second thing is, is thank God. We, we need to thank him for all of his daily provisions and cares that he provides for us. Um, it's really easy, I think, for us and a little bit more, uh, let's just not even just say in, in South Carolina or in, the world, uh, in, in, in America, but, but in the whole world, in the entire world that we live in, since we live in a, a higher level of income than most people in the entire world, it's easy for us, I think, to be thankful for daily provisions and cares like shirts and clothes and food because it just comes so naturally to us. And it, we can feel like we can provide those things for ourselves pretty easily because if I'm hungry, I can just run to the store because, you know, we, we, all have, we have jobs and we can buy stuff. Um, but that's not the case for everybody. Uh, I, I remember when I was in Honduras, uh, I was eating... This guy uh, ran this, uh, here in this orphanage for uh, these children. And, but it, the amazing thing, he had married an American and she lives down there with him. But he grew up in an orphanage. And so as he grew up in an orphanage, he had a heart for orphanages. And so that he started one and that's what he did. Uh, and I remember we went out to eat one day. And I'm a really picky eater, you should know that. We went out to eat one day and... Um, we ordered stuff, and there was just like a pile of stuff. I didn't know what I was ordering. It was in Spanish. So I ordered, and it came, and it was just a pile of stuff that I don't like. You know, I like the meat part, but all the other stuff, I'm like, Ugh. So I'm picking through it, and, and as I'm picking through it, uh, he looks at me, Carlos. He goes, uh, call me John. John, what are you doing? And I was like, well, I'm just picking out the stuff I like. And he goes, you should eat everything. And I'm like, I don't like all this stuff. And he goes, um, you should be thankful for what you have. There's a lot of children right now at lunch that don't have anything to eat. Right now. They don't have anything to eat. So you should be thankful and you should eat what you have. And I just remember thinking, man, I mean, he's an orphan and so I can't argue with this. I mean, what am I going to do, right? So I'm just like doing the best I can to wolf it down and eat all of it, right? But the point that he's making is absolutely true, which is um, in that moment, I was, it was revealed to me just how unthankful I am for food because I wasn't willing to eat and, and I was willing just to pick through it because I knew if I don't eat here, I'm going to get food later that I like. No big deal. And it was revealed to me just how unthankful I am in some, some kind of ways for all of God's provisions and care. So we need to trust him and we need to thank him. Even for the most common things that you think are so, so easy to get, we need to thank him. And the last thing, trust, thank, we need to tell. We need to tell. Um, in Philippians 1, uh, 12 through 13, Paul writes this. Now, this is a little bit later on uh, in, in, the, in the narrative of Acts where Paul is in a jail. But he writes Philippians in this jail. Uh, and he says this, um, talking about his imprisonment. Uh, so he's writing to the Philippians, talking about the imprisonment that he's been having. And he says this, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Talking about him being in jail. It's great that I'm in jail. It's been awesome because it's really served for the advancement of the gospel. And you're like, what? Listen, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So he's like, so pumped up that he's in jail and been in jail for these last couple of years because he's like, guess what? Um, I've been able to tell a whole lot of people about Jesus because of this. So trust, thank, tell. Which in this circumstances, we would think this is, 
in this particular circumstances, this is not the time to necessarily concentrate on telling people about Jesus. This time is to figure out these circumstances and get out of these circumstances. And then I'll go back to the telling of Jesus part. Um, Paul's just erasing that and saying, no, that's not the case at all. As a matter of fact, every unique situation you're in, even if it's difficult, are times to tell people about Jesus. We thank we trust, we thank, we tell. And even in my own heart, I just started dealing with this this week because um, it just seems like all I'm doing is going to doctor's appointments with Evangeline right now. It's like doctor after doctor after doctor. And all I want to do is get the information from, him, from the doctor or nurses, deal with how to fix Evangeline, and help her get, help her get uh, healthy, help her get strong. And just this past week, I was, real, I was thinking, um, as I'm thinking through all this, um, those, those relationships with these people I might never ever see again, but I am right now with doctors and nurses, are opportunities for me to talk about Jesus with these people. I just think as a pastor, I'm in Rock Hill, not in Charlotte, and so, you know, the times for me to tell people about Jesus when I'm in Rock Hill and I'm thinking about the church and I'm doing that stuff, and God's like, what, 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 you, what, what? Well, that doesn't make any sense. No. Just because you never see them again and they're in Charlotte, that's not how it works. In every situation you're in, whether you're on a business trip to Zimbabwe, or whether you're talking to doctors in Charlotte, or you're in, a, 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 in jail in a Roman prison, or you're just in day-to-day walking around in Rock Hill. All times are tell, times to tell people about Jesus. It's not like, oh, this is ministry time because these are the people that God wants me to talk to since this is time. It's, it's all times. And that's what Paul's trying to teach us here is he's praising the Lord. Oh, this is great that I'm in jail. I've got to tell a whole bunch of people in jail about Christ. It wasn't like, let me get out of here and then go on missionary journeys to tell people about Jesus. It's, you know, jail's my missionary journey right now. So if you're going through a difficult time right now, you know, God's with you. No doubt about it. And he's, he's intimately involved in your life. But these are still moments that you're supposed to tell people about Christ as well. So trust him in all your circumstances. Be thankful for his provisions and still continue to tell people about Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. Um, We thank you that you're so good to us and kind to us. And we pray that you would use this text and um, this whole book that we've been studying of Acts to continually press upon us um, just how awesome you are to us, our need for you daily, our need to trust you, and Lord, how we can day by day live on mission for you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Little kids and letters and armies. Nothing's too big and nothing's too small that you're not orchestrating things. Help us see those things, be obedient to those things, love those things, and want those things in our life. And God, I pray that you would use us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.